Welcome to Quintessence of Dust, episode 8. I'm your host, Jack Newman. So I made an episode yesterday that uh, I was in a bad headspace. And uh, I decided to do it over. Which is too bad because there was an hour of stuff that was ready to go. And now I have to think about what I was going to say, try to recapitulate my points without going down the road that I don't want to go down. Um, first off, I, I want to apologize to people for the fact that some of my podcasts as of yet have been strangely muted in spots and this is stupidly because I don't didn't realize where the microphone was located on my phone and so I would put my thumb over it when I was talking which is really dumb um, and I don't even have the adequate editing software that I can use in order to rectify that or at least remove it from the episode so I apologize to you if you've had to fast forward through that or not, you just decided not to engage with the episode because you didn't want to have to deal with that. I don't blame you. That was a dumb thing on my part. And just listening to him, I was like, oh crap. <laughs> why, oh why did I do that? And you know, when you get on a roll, you don't, you want to, it's unfortunate there's some stuff that was missed. So as you know, I always try to engage a, a rubric under which I'm talking about, try to narrow my thought process a little bit. And yesterday, as you could tell, it was something I didn't want to end up going down. I had an odd title for it, which was originally The Black Death, The Grey Heart, and The White Lies. Um, so the first part I'm going to go into is the Black Death part, which I can go into, but um, which has to do with the current epidemic, pandemic, I guess, is the correct term for it, that we're going through. And uh, how it relates to the bu the bubonic plague of uh, 14th century Europe. Well, the main difference is is, is what I'd ask people about is how, how long do you think the Black Plague lasted for? And their answer was two years, four years, five years. It lasted for 600 years. Now, the worst part of the Black Plague um, was in 1350. And between, I don't know the exact years, but over the course of six years, I think it was 1346 to 1352, uh, the Black Plague decimated between half and two-thirds of Europe, as my history textbook would alert us to. Which uh, totally is not in the context of the current pandemic 
pandemic, even though it's pretty horrific. It's Friday, April 24th, and uh, the statistics I saw today were about 80, 850,000 confirmed cases in America with 50,000 deaths. Now, we're, we're approaching pretty fast the limit they said it would be, which would be best case scenario, the modeling would say 60,000 dead. Um, and that was a day after they said it would be between 100 and 120,000. At this point, I think that it's probably going to be somewhere between those two points. I mean, it's, it's slowing down as far as we can tell. But I don't think it's going to slow down enough. I think there's plenty of places like how we are in Oregon where there may not be a high peak, but there's going to be a much longer protracted effect over time. And so long after most of the other places have ta tailed off their mortality rate, we're going to still be relatively high compared to where we were. Um, but the reason why I bring up the Black Plague is to give things in context. This isn't, even the Black Plague wasn't, um, an apocalyptic event. And even though it seems we, we've all had our realities shifted greatly, or we would think that you would have it that way, um, if you don't, then you're lucky. If, if you live almost relatively the same as you did before, then you're very lucky. Fortunately for me, I'm a student right now, so I don't really have to worry about getting employment until later in the summer. And hopefully it's a lot less protracted than it has been. But it's certainly not going to be lasting 600 years. Um, I mean, it lasted 600 years because they had zero way to, the, to deal with it. They had their way of dealing with it was creating parades of flagellation where people would walk around and whip themselves in, to appease God in order to have it ended. Um, they didn't have anything like science or medicine that could possibly help us out. So that was the beginning of where I started yesterday. And where it really started to decline was the gray heart part. And I'll, I'll give you an overview of what that was. It's just my inability to understand people when we have a delineation of good and evil, but no one ever seems to be willfully evil. The most willfully evil seem to have some complicated set of justifications that never leads them to be wholly evil and even even then it's like we can, it's hard to imagine a wholly evil person someone who is completely ensconced by darkness thus the black heart the worst we get is a gray heart is we can we do evil things but we don't have the the termidity the, the good sense to actually be evil and then be readily known by people. Like e evil, we have to incarnate in 
fantastical ideas such as monsters, ghouls, vampires. We create this image of what could possibly be the most evil, but we never see it in real life. We see people who do horrific acts, but we still believe that even the most horrific people can, can be rehabilitated to some degree. And that's why we think the prison system works and why we've basically outlawed the death sentence. Because we can never accept that someone, that they're just gone to humanity. That, And that that's, you know, it's not because there aren't people who we, we don't believe that that's the case. It's because it's a safeguard in our own minds that we can never be so lost from society and from the rules of how to comport yourself in society that it would just end with us having our heads chopped off and perhaps that's just a modern sentiment because clearly throughout time that hasn't been the same as most people They've, there have been executions readily and the problem with that is they're always necessarily subjective they're always nested in someone's worldview, which when we get into authority and the relationship between ideas and power, it gets real dicey because it seems to be throughout history the things that account more for the authority of a fact is related to power. And so I just wanted to, uh, to flag that problem in, in our societies, in the, the realization that people, we always look at the, that people aren't as good as they could be, but they necessarily aren't as evil as they could be either. People can be wholly evil in a very unfortunate way. Um, at least in our fantasies they can be, but in practice it's a lot harder for someone to be wholly evil because we have to live with ourselves at some degree and we have to completely divorce our mental state and be completely selfish in order to be that evil and just accept that the acts that we do that may harm another are just, that's just, you know, the proof in the pudding. It's just too bad that's what happens and I don't think anyone is that evil per se and uh, I also want to flag here the fact that I've said that morality doesn't exist within our societies which I agree um, however the idea of good and evil itself wouldn't be a categorization if it didn't re refer to something I'm just saying what we typically refer refer it to which is that it's categorical of someone's personality that you can be a good person and be genuinely positive to to the general human race and you can be an evil person and be generally negative and we and we have to have those categorizations to divorce ourselves from our individualistic perspective we have the categories of good and evil so we can force people out of being completely nihilistically individualistic regardless of our personal 
religious or more moral beliefs. So, uh, one of the things that I wanted to bring up that I've been thinking about recently was the JFK assassinations. <laughs> Assassination, or as, as the Warren Commission would have you believe. The single bullet theory, which was purported by our government, which is, to anyone, patently false and absurd to even make the claim of. Um, which... I guess would reveal that I've been reading the book Best Evidence, which uh, is a large 700 page volume devoted to looking at the Warren Commission and the findings they had about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Which, when you first start reading the book, you're, you know, especially if you're consp as conspiracy minded as I am. You go, oh, okay, obviously it was a cover-up. Um, and that, the whole reason why I wanted to read the book was to make sure about my findings on that. But then you get to the part where the author talks to famed physicist uh, Richard Feynman um, and realizes that what he ta thought was irrefutable evidence, uh, the fact that in the Zapruder film you can clearly see JFK's head snapped backwards, and this would not account for a bullet that was coming from back to front. I mean, he brings up the point that anyone who has any knowledge of physics would know that if you get shot in the back, the force would cause your head to go forward, not backwards. And so he shows, oh, there, there's the, these frames between these frames clearly show a backward movement. And when you watch the Zapruder film, it's pretty obvious that his head is moving back. But wait, then he talks to Richard Feynman about the physics, and Richard Feynman apparently looks at the Zapruder film, the slides individualistically, and pulls out a ruler and says, oh, he goes forward. Because in the frame before, the frame which the author, David Lipton, was measuring the backward motion, there is a, a perceived forward motion. Um... This leads to confusion on his part and doesn't know how to explain it. Um, and, you know, I think the obvious conclusion for me is that he could have gotten shot, and shot with a minute forward motion from the back and his body spasm backwards. Uh, he talked to someone who assured him that this wasn't the case, but it literally encompasses one sentence in the book. And so there's this complication then. Is now, I don't know. He does move backwards, but there's that slight forward motion, and we don't really know. A lot of it is circumstantial evidence. It's stuff that you're like, oh, well, if this were this way and things were normal, that this is what would happen. But then again, we don't know for sure, or we don't know. And he just goes into so many different facets of it that I completely lost interest after a while. Um, realizing that, you know, you can look at a set of information like that, and it's very difficult to draw an objective conclusion. 
Like I want I want there to be irrefutable evidence in my mind that this was a cover up that the one bullet theory was patently absurd and also was accepted by the government because they didn't want to have to deal with the problem of having multiple theories that contradict the official story and they you know I think they just wanted to move on from it they realized that you know knowing how what happened doesn't necessarily make the the death any easier to bear for the country or for anyone in particular that being said it's I could see it either way I could see that you know they're dealing with a limited amount of evidence and they have to make leaps of faith at some point and one of the leaps of faith is that there wasn't a second gunman I could and I could see how and eventually there becomes a three gunman theory because there needs to be three gunmen to account for the bullet wounds and that's what really lost me was when he's going into detail about the entrance wound on his throat that the autopsy report revealed but that when he was originally looked at by doctors they said it was clearly an entrance wound not an exit wound and tampering of evidence and blah 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 we'll never find out We'll never, you know, they, the thing is they don't have to have it airtight. They just need a measure of doubt. And really it comes down to whether you want to spend years of your life trying to sort through all the evidence yourself and come to some conclusion or just accept what the, the narrative is. And as far as conspiracy is concerned, I would say that if the government wasn't, creating conspiracies that they're not doing what they need to be doing as effectively. Like there has to be some intelligence that just isn't leaked out to people. And there has to be things that even though they may not be perceived as logical or as just in the common mind that there's, there's gotta be people within the government who are playing the long game. And when when the media reacts to something, they're only reacting in the short term. They're not reacting to what the long-term implications could be or what what needs to happen in certain scenarios. So I read about 70 pages, one-tenth of the book, and put it aside for now. I still am interested in that, but I realize that to fully engage yourself in conspiracy theory, you have to... There's just so many, it's not an easy thing to do. And we all want to make complex things seem way less complex than they actually are. And it's been my experience that once you look into something that's not as complex as you think it is, it always ends up being more complex than you account for. And the only way for you to rectify that is to make it less complex in certain terms, which is to overly generalize about certain aspects of it. And that's what I want to do with the JFK, but I don't. I don't want to go down that road. Um, because you're automatically coming from a predetermined conclusion. I mean, you're. It's always going to be top down as far as trying to find get to the bottom of something.
you're you have a theory that you want to believe and then you're going to find it through the slew of evidence you're going to find the traces of things that you want to latch on to which was also interesting when I was reading the book because someone had wrote in it and every time they had something that basically was going against the Warren Commission, they'd underlined it or asked why or interesting or... And you could tell that this was just a, an attempt to dissemble uh, the complex information into the, the bullet points that we really want as conversation pieces like, oh, well, this and this and this. And yeah, you know, there, there it couldn't have been behind, you know, exactly those points. It couldn't have been an exit wound from the th throat because it was too small. And it just hit his head, his head snapped back and there's a Bruder film. So how is he getting shot from the back? Yeah, you dissemble, get it. The fact of the matter is, like I said, if 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 there isn't powers to be that are, if there isn't a um, the Illuminati, for example, if there is an Illuminati, then we're really like just spur of the moment creatures. Like you, you can only really think of things in two ways, or not only, but. You either you over overgeneralize in general and say, hey, well, you know, people are simple and people are people and they're going to make mistakes and they can't be that precise. But the other side of it is that there are people who are super, super intelligent as far as numbers go. And that's easy for us to to conceptualize because we can see the products of their obsession and their knowledge. But we assume that people who are dealing with ideas in the humanities are not as complex and I think that's a falsity. I think in the humanities it's easier to work within layers of truth and for a lot of people the the easier and broader layers are, are the ones that we want to. We don't want to go deeper than that because we want to be general but there all I think there always is layers of complexity. Because you, you know, you know, I have to consider a fact that is given, but who is giving that fact and how was it measured? And then it gets infinitely complex from there. So, the secondary title of my of this episode, which is the one that I'm doing now is what I wanted to call lenses because the thing is we all have our lenses of perception and it's just so interesting how people see things in a certain light and other people see things in different lights um, we just we appeal to an objective idea that there's facts outside of us that we can appeal to, but it always seems to be nested in the subjective. And we always default back onto that. And it's, it's just that we all have our unique way of perceiving the world.
I have my unique way, you have your unique way, and it's easy to want to generalize about this itself and say, oh, well, we all have our singular obsession that nests all our other uh, motives within itself, and to bring it down to one singular piece that we can point to, and that's so we can look at people and say, well, this is the this is how I can categorize this person. And the inspiration for these thoughts and the things I've been thinking recently have been a particular episode of The Portal by Eric Weinstein, um, which I think is interesting because he talks about what he calls the gated, gated institutional narrative, which, which I guess he's trying to get at the culture of podcasting, in a sense, by this, because the inherent assumption here is that there's the, the national media sources that we still look to for guidance and for a backbone of authority and that we can say and point to this is the correct information because it came from these trusted sources that that ever-present phrase trusted sources and this is what's called the gated institutional narrative is they only allow certain ideas to filter through into the mainstream that they can filter out to the main audience um, and the thing that's running contrary to this is podcasters and what would, what would be termed the intellectual dark web. I think this is a misnomer uh, to some degree. I mean, I, be I believe that that's the case. There is two sides of intellectual discourse going on, and it seems like the one within the web space seems to be more genuine, at least more oriented to actually getting answers in the gated institutional narrative. As we can see through the proceedings with the COVID-19 outbreak, um, it's mostly designed to, to uh, what's the word, to filter information, um, to make the official narrative become palatable and also effective in affecting the psychological change they want to imbue. Because they know that there's, a, there's the news and then the news that's effective. And even when we have the two sides, because both to some degree, both sides are trying to appeal to the New Age media and to claim that they're not within the gated institutional narrative, that they can appeal to both sides at the same time. Um, Fox does this by appealing to the Trump, the Trump, Trump people, the Trump supporters, because they're the ones who are fighting against the deep state and making radical changes to the establishment. And the people in the left-wing media are doing it by directly appealing to facticity and saying that we need to get out of 
uh, the political mindset and the scheming, um, and that even his appeals to the deep state are false to some degree because he's want, he's creating a new deep state. But even then, you have to realize that the what the left wing media is giving you is filtered through the gated institutional narrative. It's just from it's appealing to your more objective side because the other side at this point is so is appealing to unfact and untruths. So yeah. So we got this ridiculous scenario where yesterday Donald Trump apparently suggested that we should inject solvents into our blood system in order to cure the virus, which, uh, you know, I think that we all have that ridiculous thought for a second that maybe we can just <laughs> do some radical thing to help uh, to try to find a solution to this. Um, but to to take it even a fraction of seriously and to even then go further and put it into our dialogue that we're addressing the nation by. It's like he had to know that he was this is a landmine and that he was doing it for approval ratings because he was appealing to his base by having these meetings. And this is the political nature of it. I, you know, I myself, when it first started and they first started having these um, White House briefings, watched them religiously because I want you want to find out any cogent facts that you can latch onto and what you know try to be informed about this whole thing. And uh, after about oh, who knows? It wasn't very long though. It it became clear that. Donald Trump saw an opportunity. There were many people like myself who were tuning in to get information um, and increasingly became a plat for him to just go on and on about random shit and appeal to his base and be political. And, you know, flying in the face of what his scientific advisors are suggesting. And this became a problem for him because he's giving unedited uh, spur of the moment. It's kind of, he was kind of making it like a podcast in that this is a temp a contemporaneous uh, utterance that, and uh, you know, that's the thing is he fucked up. He, uh, he said something that was completely ridiculous and you know, he's making a ridiculous story to account for it. And uh, this is going to create, you know, even more divisiveness on either side. Um, it's going to cause the people who need to double down with him to double down even harder and to go further into the, the faith realm, ironically as it is, um, that that's what they're appealing to is when you can't trust n news sources or have any, any mimetic process for trusting things any triaging then we lose all ability to latch on to any semblance of structure or truth 
then then yeah, who knows? Then you you say something like you can inject Clorox into your veins. Which is patently absurd. And uh, the reason why I wanted to bring it up is not to bash Trump because he is such an easy target to, to bash that it, almost anyone now tries to avoid it. Um, but it is to look at the mental nature of Trump and how it refers to... Because the first thing I thought of is that that, that is so left-brained of someone. And it's it would be interesting to look at how the left-right divide of the brain uh, appeals to political uh, sensibilities. Because Although I think it's almost impossible to, to determine one way or the other, I think that it's clearly like how the left side controls the right, the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body. I think that's more right wing and the right hemisphere is more left wing. And uh, I think this is what, I mean, these are obviously generalizations and necessarily overgeneralizations. Um, so yeah, uh, maybe that, that can be looked at in another time. But the thing I thought of when I, when I thought of Donald Trump saying that was how left-minded it is in that the left hemisphere... Um, when people have strokes in their right hemisphere, it tends to dampen the effect of the right and hyperacts the left side. And I, I don't know anything about that, so I really can't speak much on it. All I know is that that's how the split brain uh, experiments um one of the things that they were considering is people who have lesions on one side of the brain or the other and seeing how that would affect their acts. And they know that when people have strokes on a, one side or the other, it definitely has different, different effects. Um, and one of the things that they've noticed when they see someone who has a stroke in their right side of their brain uh, and their left is more focused than is they have schizophrenic like symptoms they have symptoms that that focus on the left side of the brain more of uh, grasping um, iterative processes um, less integrated and uh, I'm not an expert on this, so I won't go on at length. But the thing, the one of the things they said about people who ha are left hemisphere dominant is when people, when they try to say, "Here's here's your left arm," people don't even accept that that's their left arm. Um, they see the left side of their body is dead in in some way, um, and that what the idea of injecting yourself with a solvent is is a way of saying that your body is like an object that 
we have this divide between our head and our bodies. Um, and I recently heard it put on, once again, on a Sam Harris podcast, um, that the young don't, you know, they live with their heads and they don't incorporate their bodies and our bodies come along into, and part of growing up is integrating our bodies with our heads because when we're young and invulnerable, that's what creates that illusion of invulnerability is that we live within our heads and that we see our body as kind of just a, ve- a vehicle as opposed to being an integrated part of ourselves. And uh, that's where I see the idea of doing that is it makes sense if you have no connection biologically um, with your own body that you you can kind of take it outside of its own context and say, oh, well, you know, there's not, it's not these pro- complicated processes. It's just like anything else. It's if I want to disinfect my hands, I, I can put, you know, put on sanitizer or wash my hands. Why can't I do the same things with the insides? It's like, well, you could, if you could expose them and not destroy yourself in the process, but that's impossible. And the idea of ingesting something or injecting something, it's just how, I don't understand how, how it could be that dumb in terms of how biology works. Like, he should have flagged that immediately when it crossed his mind. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't know how indicative it is that he might be a left hemisphere dominant type person or even have some sort of mental disorder. It's very difficult to say to what degree, um, but it takes a special kind of brain for sure. And that's what I'm saying is, who knows? Um, when you can affect, when you can react to things with in such a unemotional and on like disbarred from reality it's just and I don't want to go on about this forever but it's just insane to me the degree to which that shows something wrong and it's not just that he is irresponsible and you know it shows his obvious when he was suggesting the Hypro the hydrochloroquine without any evidence, and that it may it may be seen now as being more deadly than not, and he was suggesting that people take it, but and the CNN pundits don't you know they just present the they want to present it like they're giving this unbiased account, but clearly they're jumping all over this you know the weaponization and creating divisiveness and I get it they you know when you're that when the the administration you know the president himself is particularly pointing out your organization saying fake news it's like what can you do other than go on the offensive but is that really needed in these times it's a continuation of the politicization of the whole situation which is really unhelpful it's about the last thing we need, but, you know, that's the thing is human society goes on. It, you know, we can't think, oh, well, you know, just because there is a, a virus 
that things are going to change. I, I've come face to face with this thought my, in my own life when my father passed away, which was five months ago, um, so it was pretty recent. But there was something about me that I wished that this would actually change things. That we can honor his memory. That you can honor people's memory by using that as a catalyst to come out better. With the people in my life, they didn't change at all. They remained basically the way they were. I mean, we talked about it like a fantasy for several days. But as soon as the effect wore off, it was back to normal. And uh, just lends credence to the whole determinism thing in my mind because people are the way they are because they're the way they are. Like, just because you come face to face with mortality and you realize the how useless certain things are in the face of that, you know, when I look back at my relationship with my father and the, the problems that I had and how pointless they were in relation to when he was on his deathbed and all I wanted to do was comfort him, regardless of what may have happened, you know, and that's what mortality does and I think that's the good thing about um, thinking about it is that we all we all will die and regardless of how history may or may not remember us um, we all face the same fate at the end that it's going to be all gone and uh, none of us ever want to deal with this a lot And for no doubt, it's not easy to deal with, but we need, you know, it's, it can teach us valuable lessons about um, how ephemeral some certain things are in our lives that, you know, when they don't matter. It's like, once again, a, a line from Fight Club, when you can let the things that don't matter really slide. And uh, it gives you a perspective. And... That's how I felt in the moment was the best way to honor his memory is to not lose that message. Um, and really, I, I was generalizing about what he may have or may not have wanted because it's hard to tell. My father wasn't the most open type of guy. I think him of a lot in terms of, uh, well, not a lot, but he reminds me of the guy from Mad Men that's played by the main character. Um, I can't remember either of the names, but that hit, you know, he, they have this mentality that you're not supposed to talk about your feelings, that you have this manly sort of bearing and to talk about your feelings with your family is in a feat thing that is to be avoided. And I think he, he had a lot of that, um, and he just wanted to be a provider, and regardless, he wanted to come through without consideration, um, which was one of his greatest strengths in the end, 
um, when we, me and my other family members were having severe problems. He was the the calm in the storm that would ground us. Or me specifically, I can't speak for other people, but. But then again, it's like you look back and, you know, what, what can, what do we talk about? Uh, what did I know about him? I mean, we talked a lot and I did know a lot, but it's, he didn't talk about how he, his inferences a lot. He just let things stand as they were, which is laudable because it makes it easier on the back end. Um, that being said, um, one of the things I was listening to on the portal has to do with, uh, generational differences. And I, like many millennials have just... I wasn't, didn't accept the fact that I was one. I literally had to look it up and be like, oh, yeah, my birthday is in that range, so I have to be a millennial <laughs> by definition. And I don't know, it's, there's something disingenuous about thinking about things in terms of generations, but I don't, there's no reason to feel bad about being a millennial. Um, it's bad because when you emulate the most um, the most regular traits um, that you believe are negative and are portrayed as negative and you want to avoid um, connecting with that. But he wasn't talking necessarily about millennials so much. He was talking about baby boomers, which is my parents' generation. And uh, I was surprised at how much different things rang true within that. And I was very surprised by that. Um, and this, certain things like that where it puts it in perspective and you're like, oh yeah. And I don't wanna go a whole lot into my personal life here, so I'm not going to, but it's just amazing when we think about things I think of things, the thing in terms of generations and the zeitgeist. Like, what is the zeitgeist now that we live in this COVID-19 era? I mean, the, the, the most devastating thing that people don't even seem to be able to come to terms with is not necessarily the economic pause, but society itself has been put on pause. Um, you know, relationships aren't being made right now. You know, we, we, we basically, we're all have the hand that we were dealt with. Um, and to be completely honest, my hand sucked. Um, I don't have very many friends and it was, brings it in stark contrast when you really don't have many people to talk to. It's like, yeah, I've spent years in this self-enclosed bubble to some degree. But now that it's not a choice and that, like like I said, the progress has stopped, it's like there's always an uh, inherent assumption that 
maybe I would find a group of people that would relate to me closer, closer, or in different ways, or that there was a a possibility at the end of it, which is now not even possible. And so it feels stagnant. Um, and I think, you know, that's a lot of the problems with the millennial generation is that we aren't family seeking, um, is that a lot of the complications that we have could be easily dealt with had we just been able to do as our parents have done for generations and generations before us to settle down to not and that you know that brings it to the crux of the problem in my opinion is what's the difference between generation x and the millennials well the the very definition is the digital access and what comes along with that arbitrary access to pornography I think that the sexual impetus in the world has changed drastically and it's hard for people coming up to realize in a world where sexual gratuitousness is so available and prevalent and you know when this is where and this is part of the reason why I completed the last episode um, is I was admitting my recent forays into 4chan, which I heard about and definitely has some things that I enjoy about it, the un, untrammeled, unfiltered people. But obviously there's a lot of unfortunate things that go along with that. Um, when you have people being able to post anything they want, um, but it gives you some fascinating insights into a certain group's ideology and psychology. And that was one of the things that I, the reason why I brought it up again was this threat about cheating on your girlfriends or cheating in general. And most of them were actually stories about girlfriends who were either being immensely unfaithful faithful or that the person they were with was they were being unfaithful with but essentially every story boiled down to the same point which was here's this girl who has this quote-unquote relationship that she's supposed to there's this idea of faithfulness that goes along with being in a relationship but in our recent in our society and in those stories in those samples you could see there was a definite dissonance between between the girl having the quote-unquote relationship as she's supposed to have it and where she felt uh, comfortable with her sexuality involving other partners. And this could be for a million reasons. But uh, the, the typical theme is they find a boyfriend that they're really interested in and that's where they put their emotional stock. But meanwhile, they're sleeping with their ex exes, usually. It's people that they've already establish a sexual relationship with. And I think this has a lot to do with, you know, the inability, the pornographic nature of, of sexuality in, in today's day and age, the, the, how we're taught left and right to, to discount it and to pretend like it's nothing. Um, 
and the w- woman's unfortunate position in having uh, this great power to, you know, indulge basically in something that, um, if you play it right, you, there's no argument against. I mean, it, and that's the thing is, uh, it gets really complicated, but, and it's wading into things that I have no knowledge over, but. As I said before, that doesn't necessarily make me want to stop talking about it, so I'm not going to, but it's tenuous because this is something that it's difficult to talk about, especially as a man. Um, I think it's because women just don't want to give up that power. I I completely understand, um, given that I think in our day and age that the sexual coin... um, one of the few things that can't be bought with actual coins. And I'm pretty sure I, I brought this up before. I'm not sure if it was on this, on stuff that is available. Um, but the fact that there's money that accounts for most of everything that we can use to survive, but that's the one thing that money can't buy, or one of the many things is love and sex. And really, I mean, sex is great. It's, but it's an approximation of love. I mean, there, there's the physical aspect, and then there's the the implication of the relationship. Um, and that's why I think that when when girls do that, they have the ex relationship or they have they're cheating, is because they they relate to that person through sex, and they enjoy it for whatever reason. And usually, you know. The atypical example is that the the ex is better in bed and they have twice as much sex and are, are more free about it. And, uh, yeah, and who knows how common that is, but I think it's insanely common. Um, and it's unfortunate because there's people like me who are on the losing side of it, who appeal to faithfulness and people just don't, they don't want it. Um, people want to be slutty in, in the end and eventually you get tired of it and that's when people settle down. But when you're in your 20s and 30s, it's fully acceptable for you to be just as slutty as I'll get out. And honestly, like, if I could be, I, I probably would be. It's So ra- railing against it is kind of like... I'm not going to say it's completely selfish or self-indulgent in that. Uh, it's pretty damn self-indulgent, though. I get it. it there's a system, but there's people who have, gen- gen- have genuine consequences. Not me included, even though that it is me. Um, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. I mean, that's all we can do. But I think that there's a lot of things that in, have altered the sexual landscape in our societies, and that's something we just don't deal with. And it's, you know, 
I think that's what why people are getting so anxious to get out of the scenario. It's not because our lives are inalterably different because for a lot of us, I'm sure they're they're not. I mean, unless we lost our jobs, which a lot of people have, then. But every you know, the thing is, everyone wants the the time off. It's just that now we can't engage in socializing fantasies, and you know it's impossible for someone to go cheat right now, <laughs> unless they're very very desperate and creative. But even then, it's it's going to be impossible to do it without creating uh, suspicions. And uh, there, I think there's this huge thing about that, which for me it's difficult to deal with. Um, I haven't been intimate for a very long time. Um, and in that case, when I hear people who complain about, oh, I haven't had sex for a month or two months, it's like, I know personally that you don't need it. Like, that the impetus is just this this artifice that's created in the mind that drives you. And then, and then it creates these devastating consequences. And it's because we're bored. We need something to some conflict to liven up our life and I think people do that constantly I think if people don't have enough conflict in their lives they create it and that's exactly what this causes um, and hey if, if you can create it while also in, indulging yourself in a hedonistic pursuit then all the better And it's the thing about sex is we have pornography that creates these corrupt ideas of what's possible. And they, we ha and another big axis of that is birth control. Is now there, there doesn't have to be a biological incentive. Um, there doesn't have to be like, oh, I could get pregnant and I, so I, I don't want to proliferate some person's DNA who I wouldn't want to, you know, in the short term, I wouldn't want to have to deal with or have connected to me. But really, and I think in the long term, what it creates is this dissonance. Like, I don't want, I want the, the goodness, the wholesome qualities to last. And that's what creates this Dissonance, and I think Brett Weinstein, mm, Weinstein yeah. talked about it, I believe on Joe Rogan's podcast, about the difference between the man that you want to have as your husband and the man that you want to have as your fling, and that those are two different biological systems, and that the hotness aspect of women uh, is appealing to the fling nature, and... Uh, the nature of, I'm going to use this as a, use this as bait, but the problem is, is the people who are going to take that bait want to leave a baby in me and then never be there again. And when people don't have a distance between those two things, that creates this constant 
battle within their own mind of the wholesomeness, but then the the rush and the excitement of the fling. Because that you know that's what I think is that you you have this idea in your mind that you want to propagate the wholesome DNA, um, but you get you also have the part of your biology that impels you to enjoy the fling. And so I have problems when people bastardize that process. Like I'm, you know, in in certain aspects that that biological imperative is it's awesome that we have birth control now because it re- removes a large portion of that. Um, but then again, it, it doesn't it doesn't end the fling. Like the fling then becomes a constant. It's a constant imperative, just. It's always there, and then that's why I think becomes this double shadow life that people live. That's sometimes it's gratuitous and disgusting to me, especially for my personal sensibilities. And you know, all I want to do is be able to benefit from that, but I'm not the fling type, apparently. So I have to deal with the fact that I'm just not going to be able to achieve it. And that's the thing is that there's an ultimate disconnect there between me and most females because it seems that, you know, if you want a boyfriend, it's like you just get one. And most women are between the constant string of boyfriends. Um, And for me, it's been a constant battle to try to find anyone. Um, because one of the prerequisites I have is, uh, is that we have a legitimate interest there. It's not, it's not, I, I, you know, that's where I was getting into in the last podcast. And if I go too deep in there, I'm not even going to want to release this one. So, um, I, there's a, a certain dissonance that I have to have here. Um, with my audience, which I'm not comfortable with, but eventually it'll go away, maybe. Um, but yeah, it, for me, the thing is why this is a common thing is because it, all it takes is one instance for that to go away. And uh, at this point, it's impossible for you not to believe that I'm perpetuating it on purpose. Um, and... Yeah, who knows? Who knows why that is? But say la vie. But I'm still alive, and I still get happiness, and I'm not ruining someone's life. So I'm not creating a child that I'm not gonna love. And with that, I can be, I can be happy at least to some degree. So. Uh, you know, and what you know, people always appeal to. Oh, it'll happen. It'll happen. And you know, I hope it does. I certainly do. But if that means going against my sensibilities at this point, um, I've already doubled down on that. So it's going to be hard to t- become a different person. But you know, who knows? Maybe that'll happen too. I guess we'll see. Anyway, I'm going to end it.